0: or connect with us on Instagram and Twitter, both underscore MOV number two L-I-V. We're excited to bring you these interviews, and we think you'll enjoy each and every one that we bring you. Moving to Live is back with another podcast episode. We have part two of our interview with Dr. Stacy Sims. This is a little different from most Moving to Live's. Because we were in the middle of interviewing Dr. Sims in our last episode. We just finished uh, part of the interview, and there was a massive power outage in her section of New Zealand. And for a minute, I thought I had said something that had irritated her until I got an email a few hours later saying, Hey, we lost power. We need to finish this up. So we're going back with Dr. Sims, who is at the University of Waikato. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Waikato. Waikato. Close enough. And Close she. Enough. She is a senior research fellow, as you heard in the first part. She is an American who has been back to New Zealand a couple of times, who has an interesting path where she started in academia, went into the private sector, now is back in academia. And I think what especially makes her most interesting as an academic is the fact that she has started in environmental physiology and nutrition and kind of kept her foot in that, but really emphasized on looking at... Helping female athletes. So, Doctor Sims, I want to thank you for talking to us a second time, and hopefully, there'll be no power surges or power outages this time.
1: Yeah, no predicted storms until tomorrow, so I think we're on a safe path.
0: So, I had a little bit more time after uh, losing contact with you last time to do a little more research. And would I be correct in saying that originally you started out with an area of interest more in environmental because of your activity as a triathlete and a runner and curiosity about that and how it could affect your performance?
1: Um, yeah, I started more – well, actually, I started altitude, but I figured as I did more and more interesting research into what was available with altitude, I'd probably still be doing my PhD you know, 20 years later. Um, but I started looking at the contrast between heat and altitude, and you can perturb – the body and responses and get really good blood volume adaptations with heat and dehydration, which can benefit at altitude. So started looking more and more into heat, heat adaptation, and then got into sex differences that way too.
0: Uh, It all came
1: down to, you know, like performance benefits.
0: And we were talking a little bit, we touched on it in the first interview about the differences between men and women. And I think your book, Roar, is essentially the take-home message, if I'm correct, is women are not miniature men. Is that correct?
1: Yep. We're not small men. That is correct.
0: And I'd like to touch a little bit on, if you don't mind, why is it you think that I know 30, 40, 50 years ago, the majority of research was done on men and typically on college-age men because it was very easy to walk into a physical education class or a health class and say, hey, I need uh, eight guys who are in pretty good shape who are willing to, air quotes, volunteer for this study. Yeah. But Same we ha- we have a explosion not only in the U.S. but also uh, across the world of females in athletic performance. And I think probably when you and I were going through school, there was no women's NBA. Um, I'm going to be off on the date when women first ran in the marathon, but 1992 or 96, I believe. You can probably correct me on that.
1: In the Olympics? In the
0: the Olympics. 96. So not that long compared to men. Right. And why do you think that there are so few people doing the research on female athletes And specifically on identifying differences in female athletes versus male athletes, since there are now growing careers for coaches and trainers for female athletes.
1: Um, I think there's quite a few different factors coming into play. Um, For the most part, it started as, you know, women weren't involved in elite performance or elite sport. And then, um, you know, going and finding the 8 to 10 college-age men was relatively easy. And designing a study when you didn't have hormone perturbations in it, it was easy. Funding comes into play. Um, you have a very small amount of funding in sports science research. So you want to try to do as much as possible with the minimum amount of money. And then people are just like, well, men and women are pretty similar, so we'll just generalize. And there wasn't really a big push But then as women started getting more and more involved in sport and you have Title IX that comes into play and then you start seeing differences in performances and women really wanting to get that extra 2%, you had to really start pushing through the taboo of saying the word period and having that conversation with coaches, which is still difficult. I mean, it's not very often that you have a coach who takes on an athlete and some of the first things he talks about is your menstrual cycle like a lot of women don't talk about it or they talk about it with their teammates but they don't talk about it with their coach so breaching that First, can start opening up things. And then as that's starting to become less and less taboo, you're seeing it spill out into the media. People are talking about it. And now people are picking up in the research world going, oh, well, this was in the media and these things are coming out. Well, we should really see if this is anecdotal or true.
0: And that's kind of what you do, trying to show that there's evidence that it's not just anecdotal, but it is true.
1: Yeah. And I've been doing it for 20-some years. It's just now it's, it's finally taking... On the wave.
0: (laughs) And I think when I first started uh, looking at uh, your research and uh, considering to ask you to be on the podcast, one of the things that really popped out is much of the stuff that you're doing, even though it's going to be elite athletes who are looking at it and elite coaches, this really goes across the spectrum, starting with youth athletes and even with uh, quote unquote masters athletes or recreational triathletes, runners, cyclists. And yet, I would say the majority, having worked as an athletic trainer and done a little bit of coaching with master's athletes, the majority of coaches just are still at the point where, well, here's a training program for a marathon or here's a training program for a master's swimmer. And the training protocols are essentially the same for men and women or very close without bringing into account the differences.
1: Yeah, for sure. Very much so, and it's very frustrating to see that because there's been some new research that's come out just in the past year looking at um, training uh, according to the menstrual cycle because if you have an estrogen surge, estrogen is very anabolic. So people can really hit PRs and push the power right around ovulation when you have an estrogen surge. And then we have estrogen and progesterone low, um, which is like the first day of bleeding up to ovulation. And this is when... Your or females physiology and females responses are very um, much attuned to hitting the top end power and and doing the really high intensity stuff, but as estrogen progesterone start to rise. Um, There's a shift in metabolism where we can't really access carbohydrate, estrogen, progesterone across the blood-brain barrier, so women, quote, lose their mojo. They get um, central nervous system fatigue a lot quicker. So there are lots of different things that change. So if you're on this, you know, like three weeks on, one week off without considering what's happening from a hormonal level, you're really leaving a lot of performance potential on the table. You start changing it up and looking at where a woman is in her cycle and manipulating the training program to meet the physiological benefits of those hormones, and you can get a lot more out of the woman.
0: Would it be correct to say that this is, uh, in essence, a type or a style of periodized training? It's just rather than having a three weeks on, one week off, it might be slightly different from one woman to another depending on the length of her cycle and where she was in that particular phase
1: yeah and it doesn't have to be difficult like we look here and we have um, a a working group called wispa which is women in sport health and performance and it's out of high performance sport new zealand and you're looking at team athletes and the biggest like implementation change besides like tracking the menstrual cycle is when you get a woman or a team of women in the gym you're going to have women who are within the same phase so you can say, okay, you guys are all in the low hormone phase. This is the kind of training you're doing today. You guys are in the high hormone phase. This is the kind of training you're doing. So it doesn't have to be each woman has to do something different. You can group people. Um, and I think the stopgap is when people start thinking about, oh, 28 days and all these hormone perturbations and putting a woman doing this and this and this, it becomes in the too hard basket. But you just have to take a step away and say, okay, well, if this is a group of men and And like these guys had ankle injuries and they can only do upper body stuff. And these guys have like shoulder injuries, so they can only do lower body stuff. You wouldn't manipulate the training to help that. So you just have to kind of think outside of the ups and downs of the hormones and just try to group them.
0: I know I had the good fortune to interview Don Moxley, who's done some research and data collection with the Ohio state wrestlers, as far as manipulating the training loads for maximizing performance with a team As you said, the training would be different depending on where they are in the cycle. How do you manage if you're a coach or if you're somebody who's looking at putting together a competitive schedule, does that not mean that there'll be certain times during the cycle where they're going to have better performance than others? And how do you adapt that with the fact that if they're involved with an organization, they may not be able to pick, well, we're going to play games on these dates, but no games on these dates?
1: (laughs) Yeah, and see, then this becomes the, I'm thinking it's too hard, but it's not. It's not about a woman having a, a, from a performance perspective, when you have to go for an event, right? It's not, oh, I'm two days out from my period, I'm going to suck. It's, oh, okay, well, I know I'm two days out from my period, and these physiological things happen where I have reduced plasma volume, I have increased total body sodium excretion, I have a little bit more, predisposition to increased central nervous system fatigue. It's, okay, what kind of nutritional things can I do to mitigate all this? And it's easy by taking some magnesium and some zinc, salting your food a little bit. So you're looking at the changes, and then you're implementing some nutritional adaptations to overcome those so you don't go into an event compromised. You go into the event firing as best as you can. It's just training is one thing, And you can really work with the menstrual cycle to get that top 2% if you're working with the menstrual cycle for the training. And then when it comes to the actual event, depending on where it falls, there are specific things you can do to manipulate the body and those physiological responses to fire as best as you can.
0: Would there be, if somebody was, for example, I know last year they brought together a bunch of men to try to break two hours in the marathon.
1: (laughs) Yes, I know.
0: (laughs) So would would there be the potential or would this be something if you were coaching athletes or female athletes and they said, okay, we want to in a controlled environment, try to break a specific time, whether it's the marathon or the hour record in cycling, where if you were working with a specific athlete based on their their time and their period, where you say these would be the days what might be best to do this?
1: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And ironically, it would be like day one or two with day one, this onset of bleeding. Because what happens is like a woman will feel fantastic the day before The day of or the day after the bleeding starts depends on how fast the hormones fall. And if you keep track of wellness and performance, you'll see that there's a power and speed surge around that or around ovulation. So you can actually pick the days that that record could probably be, could probably be broken.
0: So there is the potential, am I correct, if you've got two different teams, and depending where the different teams are in the phase of the cycle, that one team could potentially have a physiological advantage. Is that correct?
1: But if you have two teams, not everyone's going to be in the same cycle, or the same part of the cycle, right? Right. So, no.
0: (laughs) No, I guess guess I… Two individuals. I guess I'm I'm not explaining. you you've uh, you said that if you have a team that's all training together, they will kind of, and I will use the incorrect terminology because this is not my area of expertise. So please correct me, but they will kind of phase up, so they will be in the same. They will have similar period cycles. Is that correct?
1: No, that's all anecdotal. There's actually ah. no peer review evidence to share that women will sync up.
0: Ah, then I misunderstood. I misunderstood that you what you said, and I apologize.
1: No, no. What I was saying is that like if you have a team of, of women and you can actually train them based on their cycle, then you get better training adaptations. But if you're looking to break like the two hour record or something, mm-hmm. then you can pick the individuals and follow their cycle. And there are specific days where women can really fire a lot better for one performance metric.
0: So was it was I uh correct then in understanding then with the teams? with, uh, say, if it was a team of 10 women, for the training, some women may do slightly different training each day, depending where they were in the period? Yes. So it would be not completely individualized, but it wouldn't be, well, it's day two of the training cycle, so everybody's doing the exact same thing. It's like, okay, it's day two, and you're in this period of the menstrual cycle, and this is the training you're going to do, because physiologically, that's best for you, whereas athlete B might be doing something slightly different.
1: Yeah, but it's uh so if we look at like a typical twenty-eight day cycle, day one is the first day of bleeding, around day twelve, thirteen is ovulation, and then the rest of it is the what we call the luteal phase. So the first two weeks in the low hormone phase, everyone can do similar training because it's low hormone. It's when you get to ovulation and that twenty-four hour period, um some women just absolutely fire and can set PRs and power and VO2. So you can manipulate the training to maximize the stress you can do in the, on those days. And then as those hormones start to rise in the luteal phase, it's really the last five to seven days before the period starts where you have to do some nutritional interventions if everyone's going to do that high-intensity stuff or change the training so that women who are in that phase are doing more tempo and moderate to low intense stuff.
0: You had mentioned a few minutes ago and I said, why are people not taking advantage of this knowledge? And you said it's too hard. So I guess to to follow up on that question from what you're describing, it's somewhat a familiar or not very familiar, but if you understand physiology and do a little work, it's not it doesn't sound very very difficult, and my question would be: if the goal is to improve performance for a coach, and they want to maximize the performance of their team or their individual, even if it's hard, why wouldn't they do that? I mean, you as a former cyclist exactly. know tra- training for cycling is very very hard, but you do it anyways.
1: Right, exactly. I mean, like you have coaches now, you have online platforms, and all these coaches are are competing, or you have. Um, face-to-face, on boots-on-the-ground type coaches. So there's a whole plethora of different types of coaching, coaching modalities out there. And everyone is trying to read the latest research to figure out how they can best manipulate the the systems to get the best out of their athletes. And I'm like, you guys are missing this huge amount of information that's right there that you get the best out of your female athlete because you're just looking at, oh, how do I improve functional threshold power? What kind of supplements do I take to improve recovery? It's like, you guys are getting into the weeds. Let's get out of the weeds and look at the big picture. Like, if you want to learn something, learn something really basic called female physiology and then manipulate your micro cycles around the menstrual cycle and just see how much better your female athlete comes out. You will have better adaptations, less injury, less overtraining syndrome, probably get them out of low energy availability. If they're feeling right and they're training right, they're going to recover better. And the metrics are just going to just keep going up and up and up and up.
0: So if you're working with elite level athletes or you happen to be in a facility where the coaches are forward thinking and have good integration with nutrition and athletic training or physiotherapy, maybe you see this. But how can somebody who's maybe listening to this and maybe they're coaching a high school soccer team? And we all know that if it's a male coach coaching a female athlete, especially if they're a minor, there are potential issues with the discussion and people saying that, what can they do to kind of maximize their potential, even though they may not be able to do it as much as somebody who's working with elite athletes who are saying, look, let's figure this out and maximize our training. Because for example, many high school athletes are not going to be following a, or Age group athletes are not going to be following a periodized training program if they're playing high school soccer or select team soccer or basketball.
1: No, they're not. And we have this discussion with youth development athletes here and their parents and coaches. The number one thing they could do is get the female athlete to track their own menstrual cycle. And what I mean by that is writing down how they feel, what their performance is, because you'll start to see patterns, right? Over the course of three cycles, these apparent patterns will come right out. And once the athlete becomes very self-aware of what these patterns are, then they can have that conversation with their coach going, well, I know I'm going to really be really flat today or, you know, I'm not going to be able to hit these intensities today. And it doesn't have to be that in-depth conversation saying, oh, I'm ovulating today, so I know that, you know. It can just be like, well, I've been tracking, and over the course of these, I've found these patterns, and I know this, this, this is going to happen. So when you have those easier, not-so-specific conversations, and it's coming from the female athlete, or even if the – um the young female athlete is telling her parents, then you know the parents might be able to say something to the coach. So it doesn't have to be so difficult to talk about if you give the athlete the tool to track. And there's something like Fitter Woman app, F I T R woman, and it's based on female athletes, and they're able to go in and put in what their training is, how they felt, what the intensity is, that kind of stuff, and give you a really good opportunity to track your training and wellness versus your cycle.
0: Would you say in your with your uh, experience and your expertise, this should start as soon as the athlete starts menstruating, or is it something that they should start when they start to get at a certain level of competition?
1: Um, you know, this is where sitting next to my sociocultural um, colleagues and how they all talk about female athletes in sport becoming very self-aware and like as a young 13 or 14 year old who starts her period and it's all a big thing it's like instead of being shush shush taboo about it if you give them the opportunity to understand what's going on and track it and really be able to figure out what's going on it is kind of empowering across the board not just for sport but for other things too so I'm going to put the transdisciplinary hat on and say (laughs) as soon as they start Yeah, their period, then give them the opportunity to track and it's their own metric. It's not the mom saying, Hey, do you need me to go buy you some tampons? It's more like the female athlete is understanding what's going on and seeing these changes and giving them the objective tools to understand what's going on.
0: So it doesn't become an unnatural or or weird thing. It's just, this is part of my tracking of my training, just like, Hey, I need a new pair of running shoes because I've got X or Y number of miles on them.
1: Exactly. Or, hey, look, training peak. I have to put in my sleep hours and I have to put in my, you know, my work hours and that kind of stuff. It just becomes part of it.
0: I know one of the questions that I ask everybody for both podcasts that I do is, what's your number one self-recovery technique? And it's interesting with moving to live where most of you are professionals in the field, I would say, except for one or two people, Every one of you says sleep, and I see that you're saying sleep is important even for the young athlete, and now just like the differences between male and female athletes, I think it's probably the last five or six months I've started to see more research articles coming out on, hey, get the athletes to sleep enough.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's so underrated and so important. I put sleep up there as well as that acute recovery period, you know, that 30 to 45 minute, what are you going to do? Are you going to sit around in your sweaty clothes and kind of watch TV? Or are you actually going to do something to facilitate recovery? Because people just make it as as a, a whatever factor, right? And those are the two most important things that you can manipulate and control to improve your adaptations.
0: Switching gears a little bit to going from young female athletes to older, we talked a little bit. I think it wasn 't when we when we were recording about the large number of people in America doing marathons and I believe these statistics are uh, more women are doing them than men, so it 's really a woman becoming a woman dominant sport. Um, We also talked about the fact that many of them are not doing it competitively. It's kind of a completion activity, but there's still to put in the mileage to be able to complete a marathon in five and a half or six hours is still a significant amount of stress on somebody's body, especially if they're not an athlete. That doesn't sound right. Especially if they're not somebody who is used to doing that sort of activity, it's kind of, they have, okay, I want to finish a marathon. It's my list. So to switch gears from the young athlete to the, I don't want to say middle aged but, uh, somebody who's out of college, but, uh, has mature? It, mature. Mature. <laughs> one way or the other, I'm putting my, my foot in the mouth. What do you say to them? Because some of them are getting their information from the lay literature and we'll talk about your book in a minute, which was written for this sort of person. Would you say to them, buy my book and read my book? Or would there be, uh, simple take home points uh, such as you had for, uh, teenage or adolescent athletes?
1: Um, So, I mean, I'm right there in the quote mature athlete age and I have a lot of women and friends and stuff who are asking that too. And it's, you can get away with, with a lot of stuff when you're in your twenties and early thirties, but when you start to get to your mid thirties, late thirties, forties, there are some things that start to change. So like the ratio of estrogen progesterone start to change, Cortisol starts to affect you a little bit more, um, start to put on some body fat where you might not want to put it. What worked for you in your early 30s is not going to work for you in your late 30s. So understanding that there are some changes that are happening, even if your cycle hasn't changed. Um, And then the best way to say, okay, well, how am I going to train for this marathon is don't do fasted training like If you're a woman, don't do fasted training. And I know that that's going to bring up a lot of things because people are like, but, you know, I want to become metabolically efficient. I want to do some keto stuff. But the biggest thing for women is when you do fasted training, you increase the cortisol. Concentration because you wake up, cortisol is elevated. You go training fasted, cortisol is elevated. And the problem with that is in order to keep that baseline elevation of cortisol, estrogen and progesterone are converted, and so you start losing these sex hormones. So you're losing a little bit of an anabolic stimulus from estrogen. You start to get menstrual cycle dysfunction. And a lot of the women that I see who come in and go, well, I don't understand, I'm training for this, I'm training hard. I'm doing the best that I can, but I'm putting on body fat and I'm getting slow and tired. It's because they're starting to get this undercurrent of endocrine dysfunction. So biggest things is like just a small amount of food to bring your blood sugar up, maybe a hundred calories of carbohydrate and protein, right? So that you dampen that cortisol response and then you can go out and get really good training metrics. And again, this is a recovery. It's like, we're all busy. And it's like, I got to get up at five, five thirty, get my run in, come home. The kids are awake. Got to do something for the kids. But the first thing you step in the door is, is get some, a little bit of recovery, part of your breakfast before you start taking care of the kids. And I know it's hard. I have a daughter who's five and a half and is crazy town when you wake up in the morning, but put your recovery first in order to get those adaptations.
0: Somebody's listening to this and what you alluded a few minutes or mentioned a few minutes ago, there are all kinds of coaches out there who are coaching in all kinds of venues. And I'm sure we could devote an entire episode to talking about what's proper training for a coach, but that's really not what we're here for. Somebody maybe hires a coach because they give a training plan because there's a lot of people who just don't have the background to design a training plan to run a marathon or to complete a triathlon or to do a, a trail run. And the coach doesn't mention any of this. They don't yeah. mention... So, this is somebody, if they're if they're listening and they're reasonably well-educated because they're listening to Moving to Live and they're recognizing, hey, you know, this isn't working for me. Maybe I'm putting on a little body fat or I just don't do well on this fasted uh, exercise bout that my coach tells me I need to do every morning. Is the next step for them to pick up your book that you, you published last year?
1: Yeah, or... um, I've written a lot of um, columns and stuff as well. So like for women's health and shape and runners world and stuff, there's lots of, of information out there. Uh, of course I'll say by the book because you know, the marketing people want me to say that, but there's lots of really good um, articles and blogs and stuff that I'm associated with it that will bring up this. Um, I've done some other podcasts for um, some endurance spaces so they can find that information too um but the biggest thing too is like they'll go on to runner's world or or triathlete and they'll download a training program that's just so generic please don't do that
0: iron man in 12 weeks
1: yeah please don't do that (laughs) invest some time to find someone who's going to work with you because every body is different So, if you have a coach that you can interact with, it doesn't have to be super expensive, but invest the time and the money if you're going to do an event um, to get you to the other side healthy and able to perform.
0: That's probably the best advice I've ever heard. I know when I did my first Ironman, as a doctoral student, I actually hired a coach. So So, I wouldn't have to think about it. and. I think as a graduate student, I think I hired him for three months. He said, "That's all you need me for. Just be ready to do this amount of training for a twelve-week uh, block period." And I think it was the best three or four hundred dollars I ever spent because whenever I doubted what I should do, I could send him an email or give him a phone call. And I still remember telling him, "You know, I just don't feel really good on the bike for the first forty miles. It's just really, really uncomfortable." And I had been doing triathlons for probably ten years, and his response was how many miles do you ride in an Ironman? It's like 112. He goes, so do you want to feel comfortable at mile 40 or comfortable at mile 90? And it was kind of the light went on. It's like, oh yeah, I guess it really is hard to coach yourself. It helps to have somebody as a sounding board to tell you you're not, you're not special. You're not unique. You're just like everybody else.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I know too much to coach myself. So like I'm going to go do this crazy, um, a world championship race on the Gold Coast in September and I have a coach, right? Just invest a little bit of time just so that it takes away that doubt and that all those things. It's like a little bit of time and money for someone else to guide you is just one of the smartest things you could do as an athlete. And I'm not saying high-performance athlete. I'm like, if you have a goal and a motivation and you're moving, you're an athlete. It's your performance potential. Don't screw it up.
0: I do have a a question since you've done quite a bit of research and you are internationally renowned since you're in New Zealand, uh, (laughs) very, very, very very well known in your field. And I know many physiologists who are well known and have a specialty in research, publish, publish, publish in the research journals where maybe 50 or 100 people read the article, but you go to a conference and it's kind of like, oh, that's Dr. Sims. She's a research expert in uh, women's physiology. And you've made the conscious choice, just I've I've noticed since you've uh, written a couple articles in the early 2000s for the SCJ, you've made a conscious choice to do that, but also go outside and give it to the general public. Yeah. Uh, why, what, what made you do that or why are you doing something that in a good way, I think, is atypical from many physiologists and researchers?
1: Yeah, and um, it's kind of biting me in the ass right now because in New Zealand, you have this thing that's called PBRF, performance-based research funding, where the government will allocate certain funds depending on the university's grade of staff, So if you have a lot of scientific high impact journal publications, then you're going to have a higher grade. And right now I'm like, hey, look at that. I have a lot of layperson things and a lot of conferences and stuff, but they don't boost my grade that much. But you know what? I don't really care. (laughs) I care that people get the science-based information to help themselves be the best athlete and health person they can be. So, I mean, like you write an article in a high-impact journal, you write an article in Nature and what? You might have, I don't know, 100 people that are read it, right? What are those 100 people going to do? Do more research. How is it going to get to, like, my mom or my sister who want to be healthier for their life? It's not. But the research that I do, I want to be able to translate and help people, right? And so it's like, yeah, I'll try to publish and I'll do as much as I can to keep that academic side of things growing. But the end all is I want people to integrate it into their coaching practice or integrate into their life and have that scientific-based information just available.
0: I think what you're referring to is helping to avoid the blog clog. I interviewed Leslie Bonsey, who's a nutritionist, and she said, you know, I do a lot of this writing for people – that aren't necessarily other nutritionists because I want to put good information out there. And it sounds like you're doing that uh, in a similar way.
1: Yeah. Yep.
0: I know you got a, a lot of publicity for your book, Aurora when it was published. If you could just kind of briefly describe that to the listeners, because we have a dichotomy of listeners, not all who are big in the endurance world and doing triathlons and things like that. But they may want to know what that is and recognize just what you said, that anybody who moves and is active is an athlete and can benefit from some of the information.
1: Yeah, so it came about kind of um, – uh, in not really a haphazard way, but Celine Yeager is uh, a really good journalist and she does – like she has fit cheek and she writes a lot for bicycling, but she also writes a lot for – Um, women's health and a whole bunch of other things has quite a few books out. And we connected when I was helping her do some stuff and she participated in one of my women's only camps. And she's like, you know what, Stace, you have all this information. You're helping people like one or two at a time. Let's try to get this information out on the big scale. And I was like, well, I I can't write a book. She's like, no, what we're going to do is we're going to pitch this to Rodell and I'm going to translate all your science speak into layperson terms. And Oddly enough, Rodell loved the idea and said, yeah, we'll, we'll take this on. So over the course of a year, she took all the signs, speak and translated it into really good, easy-to-read language. Um, so I'd write something, and she's like, I have no idea what you're saying, so let's translate it. <laughs> <laughs> and it's pretty much everything that has to do with the past 20 years of research and implementation of how you should train as a woman, how you should eat across a lifespan. Are you pregnant? Are you postpartum? Um, Are you perimenopausal? Are you menopausal? Are you premenopausal? All the ups and downs. Are you on an oral contraceptive pill or not? Are you on progestin or not? Are you um, going to go to heat or altitude? And all the different things that you can do as a woman, just the small tweaks and changes to really benefit you from a training and nutrition scope.
0: Intended for female athletes, but also from that description and from what I've seen, anybody who works with female athletes can probably pick it up and pick up some ideas. And here's the real big benefit for it. Unlike so many other books on these topics, it's available in a Kindle app.
1: That's right. It is. And from what I um, saw last week, it's a, it's been translated into 17 different languages.
0: Of which you speak all of them.
1: Oh, No. I wish, but no. Um, So I was at Interbike uh, last year. Yeah, because the book came out July last year, and I was at Interbike, and standing next to Celine, and the very first person that came running up with that book was a guy. He goes, oh, my gosh, I'm a male coach, and finally all my answers are right here for my female athletes. Will you sign it? And we both look at each other, and we're like – That's awesome. It's a dude. (laughs) So, yeah.
0: We've had the good fortune to talk with Stacey Sims. She is a physiologist and an expert in understanding that women are not miniature men. There are some hormonal differences and physiological differences, which you can use to adapt their training to – benefit them, to benefit you as a coach, to get better performance from them, and to make performance more enjoyable. If you haven't picked up her book, Roar, if you haven't read some of her blog posts, then all you have to do is use Google and her name. We'll have extensive show notes for you to see. Dr. Sims, I want to thank you for talking to us not once, but twice since we had a little bit of a delay with electrical outages. So thank you for talking to Moving to Live.
1: And thanks for having me. It's been fun.
0: Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Moving to Live. Make sure you check out the show notes for contact information for our latest guest, as well as links about all the things we talked about. Intro and exit music is Traveling Light by Jason Shaw. You can subscribe to Moving to Live on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play, and be notified about new episode releases. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com. Connect with us on Twitter or Instagram, both underscore MOV number two LIV. Please tell your friends about moving to live. It's a go to place for information for movement and exercise professionals and amateur aficionados who understand that movement is part of what makes your life complete. Until next week, keep on moving.